Welcome to the Winning Edge Investments Podcast. Winning Edge Investments provides industry-leading horse racing and sports betting tips, ratings, and education, enabling you to invest intelligently and treat your betting like a business. Go to www.winningedgeinvestments.com to learn more about how you can start to supercharge your betting bank immediately. Treat your betting like a business and invest intelligently with Winning Edge Investments. Today on the Winning Edge podcast, we're joined by Ballina trainer Ethan Ensby. G'day, Ethan. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Pleased to uh, to get on. No worries, mate. Good to uh, chat and hear about your journey in the industry. Um, firstly, tell us about how you got into racing. Uh, basically, mum was a steward for about 17 years. She was a swab steward um, and uh, basically grew up in it. I didn't really show a lot of interest in racing until I probably hit sort of double digits in the age, I suppose, sort of, sort of 10, 11, 12. That's when I sort of started to take a bit more interest in it. And then once I got a bit closer to being able to be licensed, obviously at, at 14, we, you know, you can't get a strapless license until you're 14. So uh, that's when I sort of got a little bit more into it. But as a kid, you know, I, I spent, oh, you know, countless times in, the, you know, sitting in the steward's room. They'd hand me a, a, an old Nokia and I'd play snake on it and that, that kept me quiet and, uh you know, kept me away out of the stewards' road, but uh, basically, um, the, you know, there was a fair few times where mum, you know, there was nobody around to babysit me. Dad was obviously working, or um, you know, my grandmother wasn't around, or something like that. To so, you know, mum had no option than to take me to the races, and uh, yeah, sat into uh, plenty of um, you know, plenty of stewards' rooms, plenty of. Uh, protests, that sort of thing. Never really knew much about what was going on. Like I said, they just handed me a phone and stuck me in the corner and said, shut up while we do this, basically. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, grew up, basically grew up in the shields room, but yeah, didn't really get into the racing side of things until I sort of got a little bit older and knew what was going on and went, you know, this probably might be where, you know, I could probably make a career. Obviously had horses all my life, um, uh, but uh, racing definitely... You know, I've always wanted to do something with horses. When I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a mounted copper, um, but I'm colourblind, so I can't shoot a gun. So <laughs> that that was out the out the window pretty quick. But uh, yeah, you know, once I sort of got a bit older and sort of you know realised what racing was all about and that sort of thing, I thought you know it's probably where I want to be. So how long have you been a trainer for now? Uh, this is my. Uh, seventh season, I think. Um, so I got my license just before my nineteenth birthday, um, and yeah, so I'm twenty. I'm twenty six now. Turned twenty six last month. Um, so yeah, I think this is my seventh season. Yeah. Geez, not many trainers get their license before they're twenty, do they? No, I think uh, I definitely was the youngest trainer in Australia at the time. Yeah. Um, there's there, there's a few that have got them sort of around that eighteen nineteen. I think. Uh, Billy Healy knocked me off my uh, my little perch there as the youngest trainer when he comes through. I'm pretty sure he got his when he was 18, just before his 19th birthday too. So he's been going for a little while now. He's a couple of years younger than me, but uh, yeah, not many sort of get into it. It's sort of like you know, a lot of people look at me and they go, "Oh, you know, you're a bit too young to be a trainer, aren't you?" And you know, it's sort of I, I get that a lot, but or not not so much nowadays. I think the 
the old age has hit me pretty quickly. I think, you know, getting a trainer's <laughs> license adds 10 years to your life and I've got the greys coming through and oh, that no. middle age spread. So it's not real, not looking real promising, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're starting to look, look, look more like a trainer after a couple of years, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, yeah, like I said, I think it adds 10 years to your life. But anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> what's, the, what's the hardest part about, or one, being a trainer, but being a trainer at a young age? Uh, attracting owners. Attracting owners, attracting clients. Um, unfortunately, it's uh, you know an, an old man sort of a sport, um, and you know you've got to do a lot to prove yourself uh, as a younger trainer. I, I guess one thing that probably annoys me a lot is the fact that people sort of look at you and because you're young, they don't think you know what you're talking about. Um, and I'm not saying I know more or any of us younger trainers know more than the older fellas, but I think nowadays with uh, technology the way it is, it's a lot easier for us to adapt to new things. Um, And I think that's attributes to a lot of the success that a lot of us younger trainers have, you know, like, you know, know, Costa's, Michael Costa's not a, not a um, old trainer by any means. I think, you know, he's got a few years on me obviously, but you know, he's absolutely killing it up there on the Gold Coast and, and it's surely because he's adapted to new things and I think you, you, you'll start to see over the next few years us younger trainers will start to take over because um, the older fellas, they just don't want to, they don't want to adapt. They don't want to try new things. Yep. Yeah, well, communication's a big thing and, you know, a lot of older trainers don't even know how to use it, you know, a smartphone nowadays. So, yep. you know, communicating with owners is, uh, you know, a little bit... Uh, Oh, how do you pull it, put it, I suppose, uh, foreign to those older fellas? They sort of, you know, expect you to just pick up a newspaper and have a look and see if your horse is in there. And, you know, newspapers are nearly non-existent these days. So it's sort of, yeah, it's... The younger trainers will start to dominate shortly. Um, and just sheerly because technology's sort of taken over, you know, just being a horseman nowadays doesn't doesn't get you you know, as far as what it used to, you know, if you're sort of a bit of a rocket scientist, you can, you know, probably probably get a couple of steps ahead of uh, blokes that are, you know, just sheerly horsemen. Yeah. Before you took your trainer's license out, did you work for any other stables or um, anything like that? Or Yeah, look, I I originally wanted to be a jockey. Um, obviously, I've rode since before I could walk. So, the you know, naturally, people who have sort of gone through pony club and get into this, you know, pony club camp draft and that sort of thing when they're kids and get into this, you, you know, the most thrilling thing you want to do is ride. Um, and I just, like, I'm a, I'm a fairly tall person and none of my family are, are, are skinny by any means. So I was always sort of, you know, had the odds against me from the get-go, but uh, I, I gave it a bit of a crack and was never going to make it. So... You know, I just stuck to the track work side of things. I worked for a lot of different smaller trainers around this area. I never went to any of the big stables um, and and learnt my craft there. But I think that probably better off going down the path that I did go down. Not saying that uh, you know I learnt more off the fellas around here, but um, I got to see a different variety. And I think if you go to the bigger stables. Unless you're a foreman or a track work rider, like a head track work rider, um, or you know, assistant trainer or something like that, if you're just a stable hand or just a normal old track work rider, you're not going to learn that much because yep. you're just a number. 
just so do the same thing each day. Well, basically, yeah. And unless you've got that more hands-on sort of, you know, you're doing worksheets, you're doing feeds, you're doing this, you're doing that, you 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 know, you just don't you don't really learn anything. So, whereas I've learned a lot off a lot of different uh, trainers, and everybody's got their own different way of doing things, and, and and that's one thing I did learn is you know working for you know countless people around here is no two trainers were the same, and um. I think you learn more off the people you don't really have much an opinion of because you watch what they do and you go, well, I don't think that works. I don't think that's right. So I'm not going to do that. You learn what not to do. Um, but I had some really good mentors, Pete, Pete, uh, Pete Stanley in Casino, Pete and Diane Stanley. They never had a big team, but um, obviously Peter was a, a very good um, jockey in his own right. He rode for, you know, he was apprentice to Theo Green, rode for TJ Smith, Bart Cummings, those blokes. Back in those days, obviously his son Justin Stanley's a, a, one of the best riders in Queensland, one of the most underrated riders in Queensland. And uh, Casey, you know, she she rode fairly well around here too. Um, but uh, Pete, Pete's like a sponge. You know, if if someone's got if there's something to be learnt, Pete will take it in. He you know reads a lot of books and obviously you know listen to a lot of what Theo and Bart and TJ and that had to say and. He's the first one to pass on that information, you know, what he's learnt to you as best he can. And, um, you know, I learned a lot off Pete. Like I said, he never had huge numbers and he's, you know, not getting winners every every time he goes to the races. But I still learned a hell of a lot off Pete um, from what he'd learnt back in those days as well. Is there one main thing that you think um, sort of shaped your career? Is there one main thing which you took from him that you've you've incorporated into your own career? Uh, more the feeding side of things, you know, he sort of, he was he's very big on feeding, um, and feeding to, to what you work. Like, so if you, you know, you're working them hard, you've got to feed them big. And if you, if you're working them soft, you, you know, don't feed them quite as much, but, uh, or, you know, not quite as concentrated, you know, so, um, things like that, um, working them, obviously picking up different things, little sort of, uh, you know, old sort of remedies for different things as well. He was sort of big on those sort of things. Um, and just sort of, you know, different things in general. Like he always said that uh, if the greatest mug comes up to you and says you're doing something wrong, you know, you're more than likely doing something wrong and it's very, very obvious. So <laughs> fix it very quickly. You know, that was one of his one of his greatest, you know, best aims. And he learned that off, off Theo because uh, I think one day he... he uh, slaughtered one when he was an apprentice and uh, somebody um, had a go at him in the car park and Pete sort of threw a bit of, bit of you know, cheek back at him and, he, and old Theo pulled him inside and said, listen, obviously this bloke's seen you do something, you think he's an idiot, but he's seen you do something wrong. You probably have done it wrong. And if it's that obvious, fix it, you know? So, and that was one thing Pete always said to me. He said, you know, like if you, you know, you've got to watch things, you've got to learn things, and you've got to listen for, listen to everyone because they might not be right, but something they might have picked up, you might be able to go, well, yeah, I did do that wrong. You know, I'm, I've got to fix it. So, yeah, no, he was, you know, little things like that. Pete was full of those sort of philosophical little little things, I guess you could call them. Yeah. Have you got any sprays in the car park at Ballon before? Or? Uh, no, I've got a few Sprays through emails and stuff like that. Yep. You know, the good old good old keyboard warriors get on there and uh, they like to give you a spray. Um, I'm known for giving a spray. Um, I, you know, I I don't hold back. Um, 
few few uh few What's the best to. one you've given? Uh Nori Masuda's copped a couple off me that have been pretty handy. Um uh Ed O'Rourke will, will vouch for the one at Grafton last year. He uh, he pulled me aside and said, Mate, I've never seen anything like that. That was <laughs> that was gold, but maybe you might want to do it in the middle of the mountain yard and I said, Yeah. <laughs> But uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't cop, you know, I don't cop crap. I, you know, I'll, I'll let you know what I really think, and, um, you know, it's, I call a spade a spade, and some people don't like it, and but you know, I'd rather be honest and and uh, you know, get it off my chest, and I, I usually yeah, get over it pretty quickly. Yeah. Has yeah. it um, slaughtered one again like that before or after that spray, or pretty good? And, no, I ended up giving him a suspension for a little while. He didn't ride for me for for a little while, not long after it. And uh, the, the suspension might have been a little bit too long because uh, <laughs> first meeting I threw him back on. He, he he rode a double for me. First two horses he was on, he rode a double for me. It's oh, so I, uh, I Keep him hungry. To, uh, yeah, I had to eat humble pie, actually, and, <laughs> and turned around and said, oh, maybe that suspension lasted a little bit too long. And, uh, you know, he's, he's rode a couple of winners for me since, and, and we're back flying again, so... Uh, we've got a great relationship, Nori and I, and uh, you know, I mightn't be the best trainer, he mightn't be the best rider, but uh, something we do together obviously clicks, and uh, we've got a pretty good, pretty good little association. So uh, it's it's good that we've been able to uh, bury the hatchet, and he's he's back in the camp. Tell us about the um, the Northern Rivers racing scene. What's it What's it like? Uh, it's different. It's different. There's. Uh, away from Sydney so we sort of get a little bit forgotten about um, as far as you know supporting that from from uh, racing New South Wales but uh, it's good in the fact that we've got you know we can bounce across the border uh, to Queensland Brisbane's only you know two and a half hours away so um, well that's on a bad day you can sort of get there a bit quicker most of the time but you know Gold Coast is within an hour and a half uh, Bow Desert's within two hours and that so we've got the best of both worlds you know we're still eligible for you to have highways um, Kosciuszko's country championships, all that jazz down here, Bob's, um, and obviously the good country prize money in New South Wales. But at the same time, as you know, we can shoot just up the road and we've got, you know, Metropolitan Racing, you know, within two and a half hours of here. So we've sort of got the full spectrum of, of racing. We've, we're probably a little bit light on with non tab racing and, and half tab sort of races. So placement of your sort of second stringers can be a little bit difficult. You've got to, sort of travel a little bit, you know, to, to get to sort of, you know, your deep waters and that sort of thing. But, you know, if you strive to have a, a team that doesn't have those second stringers, you know, you, you probably don't have that problem. But it'd be nice to see a, a few sort of more lower grade of races around here for those second stringers. But at the same time, um, you know, the, the tab money's just as good. So, you know, if you can move them on to, to somebody else smaller, then you do it. But, it, you know, if you can hang on to horses and place them a little bit, bit uh bit better you you know you you uh we can keep our numbers up a little bit more but at the end of the day you have truck we'll travel with you know we'll, we'll go anywhere to, to get a winner we've you know been as far south as uh we, we've had runners in sydney we've been as far west as tamworth and we're you know frequently going to to uh toowoomba so uh, a few little hit and run missions up there have been pretty pretty handy for us so um yeah, look, you get the best of both worlds, but it'd be nicer to get a little bit more support from, from down south. But uh, at the end of the day, obviously, New South Wales doesn't want their money going into Queensland. At, at, uh, yeah, exactly. So yep. understandable. 
<laughs> yep. Yeah. Is is that the main the main gripe you've got with the funding? Is it from New South Wales racing New South Wales um sort of being reluctant to give money which might go to Queensland? Yeah. I understand why they do it, but at the same time, you know, like it, it'd be, uh, it'd be nice to get the same sort of support as what, uh, you know, Scone and Tamworth and them sort of places get. They, you know, they, they get money splashed at them all the time and, you know, um, better facilities up here with all our tracks, you know, like I think when, you know, when we get winners and stuff like that with, um, you know, it just makes it all the, all the more, uh, I suppose, um, special because you've had to work that little bit harder because you you know you, you we don't have um you know the the a class facilities um that you know Tamworth and Skane and all those sort of places have they're a little bit closer to Sydney so it's a bit easier for them to run down for those tab highways and that but uh you know we we do we do a good job we you know with the the good part about us up here is we we've had to learn to adapt to different things and the clubs do their best and you know we we've we've recently work with the club here to um, do a bit of work on our sand track and, uh, you know, the results that all of us trainers here in Ballina have, have got um, since that uh, little upgrade was done um, is, you know, I think the, the about two weeks later, I think Ballina trained three or four um, um, midweek Metropolitan winners, you know. So, you know, we... The little things like that, we you know, we don't need much to uh, to, to get us to the mark, but it just a, a little bit of help would be good. Is Ballina your favourite track up there, or? Uh, no, I love my hometown in Casino. Um, people probably think I'm stupid, but uh, Casino, you know, it's always good to go home and get a winner at Casino. Um, they always say it's very difficult to get winners at Grafton. Grafton's a very hard place to get a winner at, but uh, Grafton's been our most successful track. Um, so, uh, that you know, if that if that's the case, then we've done pretty well. But... Uh, my favourite track's probably Tamworth. I've been there twice, and I don't know why, but I absolutely love the joint. I'd move there in a heartbeat, but uh, you know it's a little bit too cold out there for us. So. <laughs> it's freezing. How far is that for you? Uh, I usually go the day before. I think it's about six, six and a half hours off memory. I haven't. Uh, we went to the Mornington last year, so Tamworth Cup Day last year, I think it was, um, and off memory it was about six and a half hours. Yeah. Yep. But it's been some uh, worthwhile trips. Yeah, the last one, last one we went to wasn't, but uh, the first time I went out there, um, we had a real fruitful day. I think I got a couple of placings and and uh, and a winner with the Turbo Star, who he he won like a real good horse, and we went to Sydney and un unfortunately broke down in a, in a race in Sydney. But uh, he, um, you know, he was a real good winner out there. We've we've uh, like I said, we've only been there twice, but the first time we went out there, we had it, we had a fair bit of luck actually. What was that good horse you took to Dooman for the staying races? Um, uh, Torrens. Torrens, yeah, yeah. He's he's uh, actually down in Sydney now. Um, the uh, the connections, uh, the overseas connections, want to keep him as a stallion. Um, and obviously, to be a, a stallion proposition, you got to win stallion making races. There's no stallion making races in uh, in northern New South Wales, and yeah. very very limited opportunities in uh, in Queensland for a stayer. Actually, there's probably zero opportunities for 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 a stayer stallion making races up there. But uh, they've sent him down to um, to Laurie Parker in in Sydney, and uh, you know respect the decision. Um, obviously, would love to have kept him up here. I think uh, I had plans to 
to geld him, and that was, I think, the one of the decisions um, that uh, that prompted them just moving down there. As I did, you know, recommend that gelding him would would make a, a far better horse. Um, and I, I thought that uh, if we gelded him, we could have been a live chance in a Grafton Cup. Um, but he's gone down there. He's had a couple of trials down there for Laurie, and uh, I'm sure he'll be hitting the tracks down there shortly. And I'm sure if uh, if, if he doesn't make the marks down there. Uh, you know, we, we might back. get a shot back with him again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It must, so, must be hard, uh, for, hard for a young trainer like yourself to have horses like that taken off you, and or not, or moves, I guess. Um, and then, you know, your good horses, which you take to, to Sydney, break down. How do you how do you get over that stuff? Yeah, look, uh, the the turbo star thing in Sydney was, um, that was, that was devastating. That, uh, you know, you'd, Nothing worse than uh, coming home with an empty float, uh, walking back with the you know the, the bridle in your hand and not having the horse with you. And to make matters worse, I rode that horse every day the whole time we had him. I don't think, I don't even think the missus rode him work when uh, when we we're back in casino. And you know he went down there in the greatest possible condition we could have had him. He was a you know one his last start at Tamworth, um, running away from him. Rachel Murray didn't even touch him with the stick. He was just an absolute gentle giant. He was just a, he was a lovely horse to have around the stables. He, um, the only day he showed any sort of malice was the day he ran off the track at, uh, at uh, Doombin, I think it was, and threw Jason Taylor over the yeah, outside yeah. fence. Yeah, I remember and that. his yeah. shoulders and that. But uh, um, he was just an absolute gem of a horse to deal with, and, and he had a, you know enormous ability and to, to obviously, you know, was a, a big thrill to have our first runner in Sydney and for it to, to turn around and, uh, I guess end the way it did was um, was heartbreaking. I I got to admit, you know, I questioned whether or not continuing was a good idea. Um, but uh, I'll never forget that day, uh, and I owe a huge amount of uh, I guess praise to um, Darren Beeman and John O'Shea. Um, John O'Shea was obviously training for Godolphin at the time. Had a million runners on the day. Um, had plenty of horses he could have been saddling up, and, and so did uh, the Beedman. And uh, the both of them come over to me. Like obviously went around to the to where the horse was and found out the news and had to you know front you know ten or fifteen owners that had made the trip down from up here to Sydney to watch the horse go around. And you know I had devastating news for him. Um, and uh, you know I was pretty upset. I was boring my eyes out to be completely honest with you. And uh, Beedman and O'Shea come over to me and, and I'll never forget it. O'Shea grabbed me by the hand and shook me hand and put his arm around me and uh, and said, listen, mate, I know this is probably the hardest day you, you're ever going to have on a racetrack. Um, unfortunately, it's something that does happen and, and something that, uh, you know, accidents happen. And he said, this this will be the, uh, the, the turning point in your career. And um, he said, whatever you do, don't give it away. You, you know, I've been watching you for a while. A mate of mine worked for him, and so they'd been watching us. And, and that was only early days. And he said, "Mate, you, you know, you, you're a good young trainer. You, you're a good horseman. Uh, whatever you do, don't throw it away." And uh, he, I'll, I'll never forget that day. Never, you know, never forget what uh, John and, and and Darren said to me that day. And uh, you know, for him to take the time out to, to do what they did was, you know, outstanding. But uh, just just showed the the true um, the true the people that they really are. Yep. It's yeah, great you know, like, together. Yep. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, you know, uh, 
people that probably wouldn't do that. But at the same time, you know, to every one of them, there's five or six people who, you know, they they want to they want to do the you know the, you know the right thing and uh, and come and do something like that. And yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that day. And that, that was definitely hard. It's probably the one of the hardest days I've ever had. Um, it was like losing a child and. Uh, Probably the second hardest day was losing Torrens. I think I cried for about a week, which makes me sound like an absolute sook. But uh, oh, it's tough it's, in uh, your position, a young trainer, and you you think you've got horses which are going to take you to the next phase of your, of your career, and next day they're not there. Well, you know, it was a bit of a surprise. Um, you know, it, it I didn't see it coming, um, and. To get an email late at night that uh, the truck was coming the next morning to pick him up was a bit of a it was a massive shock, um, and I wasn't too impressed about it. Um, to yeah, it's a little bit of a kick in the guts when you you know you you've trained a Metropolitan winner with the horse three mm. starts back, yep. run second at Metropolitan Grade two starts back, and I guess flopped at its last start. But uh, Pengelly come back and said, look, he just his mind wasn't there, and that that prompted my. Um, my recommendation, my suggestion to geld the horse. Um, so uh, the horse was in the paddock. He was due to come back. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything's been tipped on its head. And, you know, it was hard. Um, but it's the first time it's ever happened to me. And I'm sure it won't be the last. Um, it happens in racing. It was around the exact same time as Fabergino was taken off that uh, Tiana Robinson and, and given to, to, to Chris Waller. So... I'm sure she felt the exact same way. You know, she'd spent all of spring basically in, in Victoria with, and, you know, it would have been hard with the lockdown. She, she wouldn't have been able to go home to Western Australia. And, you know, she'd done a done a really good job with the horse and, and to have it taken off her. And uh, for whatever circumstances, it probably, you know, different circumstances of what obviously Torrens and I and the connections, um, the overseas connections um, had with us. But, uh, um, yeah, you know, like it's it's hard. But uh, that's racing, as they say, and you move on and hopefully we find another one. I think, you know, we've got some, some really nice yearlings coming through. We've got a, a, a two-year-old by dissident there that, uh, funnily enough, we watched a webinar on uh, heart rate monitors the other day that Kira Ma did and um, it prompted us to go and dig a little bit deeper with our heart rate monitors and uh, we compared this particular uh, two-year-old of ours to Torrens and um, the the data we had on Torrens and the data we have on uh, Midorio, although they were a year apart, is um, obviously we got the data was of Torrens as a three year old and this bloke's only two, um, almost identical. Like if you you know you took the the names away and, and put them over the top of each other, um, the data is like I said almost identical down to the point where you know they're like point zero one percent or point zero one whatever. Um, away from the other one. So we've got fairly high wraps on him, but his trial didn't reflect that. Um, but he did pull up Shinsaw from it, and it was a pretty boggy track at Lismore. So uh, forgive that trial. But uh, if he lives up to, to uh, what we think he can, um, you know, we, we've, we've got another one there, and we've got some, uh, or hopefully got another one there, and um, we've got some really nice yearlings coming through that we've uh, went on a bit of a shopping spree this year. And yeah, I was going to say, so looking through what you've got in the... In the um... On the website, you've got a couple of really nice, nicely bred yearlings and two-year-olds, so um, must be exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, we've teamed up with Impact Thoroughbreds, and they uh, they bought us um, our top lot actually at the Magic Moons. That was a 
um, in book one. So it was a bit of a thrill to uh, to buy something out of book one and get it for a fraction of what the rest of the Hellbents were, were selling for at the time. And um, the Invader bloke we bought out of book two, um, once again, you know, we bought him in a fraction of the, what the Invaders were going for up there as well. So, um, you know, they're two really nice horses with great pedigree pages and, you know, got a lot going for them as far as their confirmation and everything's concerned. They're in work at the moment. And, uh, yeah, we, we bought another Invader, which is actually half-brother to the Dissident that I was talking about. Um, we uh, we bought him out of the classics. Um, he's a really nice little cult. Um, bought an absolute cracking little Rubik filly out of the uh, Melbourne Premier sale for sixteen thousand. Got her for an absolute steal. Just uh, actually took her to the paddock today. Um, she's been broken in, had a, a little prep, um, and she'll probably have six or eight weeks out and come back and get stuck into it again. And a, uh, a little Churchill cult. We bought him out of the March Magic Millions. Uh, cutest sale, so I uh, got him for $6,000 and a little bit of an ugly duckling, but uh, got an absolutely unbelievable um, action on him and, uh, you know, big, solid, strong, robust looking cult and, uh, you know, got him for a fraction of what the Churchills have been selling for too. And you mentioned the um, the heart rate monitors you've been using on Midorio. Um, what kind of other technology do you use to monitor the horses and um, sort of get a gauge on where they're at? Oh, basically, technology-wise, the, the e-trackers are about the only thing we do use in that respect. Um, we don't have a treadmill, so I'd love to get into blood, uh, blood lactate, um, taking them and, and, and doing the blood lactate testing, um, but it's a lot harder to do in the field than what it is um, in you know under a controlled environment on a treadmill. So... Um, you know, we're looking into getting a treadmill, but at the moment, um, it's just not viable um, for us to get one. Uh, once we do, I'll, I'll definitely get into that side of things too. That really interests me. And uh, we take, um, you know, blood counts quite regularly. You know, um, they'll gallop on, say, say, a Tuesday before a Saturday race, and we'll take the blood from the Wednesday, see how they, they handle the gallop, see how they re re they've recovered from it, see if we've got to, um, you know, uh, fix anything up, you know, something might be a little bit low, so we, you know, might need a little bit of potassium for a couple of days or this or that or something else, you know, like if there's anything we can uh, we can, we can can bring up into the normal parameters or the, you know, optimum parameters. But uh, basically that's all we sort of do is, that, you know, we, the e-trackers, they're a great little tool. Um, and, uh, you know, they spit out, you know, just about everything you need to know or, or want to know as far as their, their work's concerned, their gallops. We, we, we use them in all our gallops, but I'm starting to, um, to use it a little bit more in the slow work on a few of the younger ones to, to sort of gather a bit more data about them before they sort of get to that point where they start to, to step up in their work and uh, we can sort of, you know, compare different things and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, we sort of we we do a fair bit, but um, obviously limited due to you know uh, facilities. Um, but uh, the the bloods and the the heart rate monitors are something big that we we definitely use as far as the training side of things is concerned. And you mentioned you don't have a treadmill, but I saw on your website you've got a boat ro a boat rower. Um, it's obviously use him a bit in the uh, is it the Clarence River up there? No, we. Uh, I don't know what river we are here no. in Ballina actually. I've got no idea. Probably the rich. <laughs> Probably the Richmond. Yeah, it might be it. Yeah, yeah. I should have um, stayed out of that. Yeah, 
clearly see, see I did well at geography. Yeah. Um, there, we, we've got a canal that basically runs right around the racetrack um, in the back of the, um, not our stables, but um, the stables across the road. So um, Terry McCarthy, Stephen Lee and all them across the, across the road, they've got the canal runs right past their back door. And there's a, um, a basically a vacant block of land between two of the houses straight across the road from Billy Folly's place. Um, and that's where everybody on this side of the road um, uses to swim their horses. So um, Dennis Duane or Sharpie as we call him, um, he, he's he been a trainer here for a number of years. Um, he can can row a boat really well. I, you know, he he does a lot of the boat rowing around here. I can't. I go around around in circles. So I'm absolutely is it, useless. Is it hard rowing a boat with horses? I guess they're, they're tied up to something on the boat, aren't they? How, how does it work? Well, no, no. Sharpie just uh, holds onto a big long lead. Um, so, and they, you know, swim behind the boat. You, you, you've got to sort of break them into it. Um, some horses, obviously, they they don't, you know, um, they're not used to walking down a, a beach. So the, the white sand's a bit daunting for them at first, and then you throw a, you know, a big patch of water in in front of them as well. Um, that can be a bit daunting, and you know, we usually. When we're introducing a horse to the water, it's sort of a three or four person job. You know, you've got uh, Sharpie Row on the boat and then um, one of the girls usually get in behind him because he tells me I'm too fat and I weigh the back of the boat down. So uh, um, one of the girls usually get in behind him and hold onto the horse and make sure it sort of learns to swim behind the boat and not try and overtake it or something like that. But uh, um, once you sort of get him in there, he just takes him down himself and... Uh, you know, they just go behind the boat on the on the lead, and uh, you know, takes him in, and he I make him swim a little bit different to what he swims his his horses. But once again, you know, like I said earlier, each each trainer has their different different way of doing things. But I swim sort of a little bit more like John Size does in Hong Kong. So I make him so that for every minute they spend in the water, they've got to be out for a minute, um, and they'll only go in for sort of one minute increment. So. You know, the, the longer distance sort of horses, they, they might have, you know, a three or four minute swim, but they'll, they'll be in, in one minute, out one minute, in one minute, out one minute, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And shorter distance horses might, uh, they'll, they'll have, you know, two laps basically. So two two minutes, minute in, minute out, minute in. Um, and, you know, there's a few there that sort of aren't the best of swimmers or they might have a few little back issues that, um, might get aggravated by the longer swimming, so they might just have one minute, or they might go a minute and a half, or you know, the horses that you know they might be they they might be racing soon, and you might want to keep them that little bit fresher. They might only have a minute or a minute and a half, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, he he basically majority of the stable once they're broken into it, he just you know they'll they'll go out, they'll they'll walk, they'll 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 get saddled up, they go on the walker. Um, they'll have a sort of, you know, 15, 20 minute, half an hour walk. Um, then we'll pull them off the walker, jump straight on them, go out, work them, come back. Sharpie takes them straight down for a swim. They come back and they have a, you know, a, a um, at the moment when it's cold, we've got a hot water system that they, so they get a warm bath and then they'll stand in the boxes for half an hour with the, um, oh, 20 minutes with the, the ice boots on and then they'll go back to their boxes. So, and if they have any sort of treatments like, you know, foresight or um, gastropella or anything like that, they'll get that before they go back to their box. But uh, basically, yeah, Sharpie just comes and grabs them out of the box and sings out how many laps are they doing. And I'll, you know, someone will let him know how, how long they've got to go. 
Um, he hasn't quite worked out how to work, read the uh, worksheets yet, so um, he uh, someone's got to tell him. But uh, yeah, he just takes them down, swims them, they come back, and yeah, have a hose, ice spritz, go back to the box. Sounds like a, like a pretty big part of the day. But like, what what time do you start in the mornings there? Uh, so Alana, our, we've only got one staff that works for. She starts at four o'clock, so she'll run around and uh, and give all the horses a couple of handfuls of hay just so they've got something to munch on before they get saddled up and go on the walker. It's it's good to keep the uh, stomach ulcers down um, when they've got a little bit of something in their in their gut to sort of um, stop the, the the acid and that slushing around in their gut. So um, uh, she'll go around and do that, and then uh, Jade and I sort of. Jade usually beats me over there. That's my partner. She uh, she rides majority of the work. Um, she sort of beats me over there about, you know, four, quarter past four, gets the first couple on. Then we try and we try and get out there at 4.30 if we can. The track opens at 4.30. Um, but 90% of the time, it's sort of more quarter to five by the time we sort of um, get, it, get the first four or five saddled up and on the walker. And then, you know, they've had their time on there and pull them off and, jump on them basically and then it's all systems go from there but uh the alarm usually goes off at 3 30 i need about 15 of them to get me up um i'm not a morning person by any means i've got to have two red bulls and uh, a <laughs> cup of tea before i get before i you know Perhaps get out of zombie mode but yep. yeah basically so you know a couple of bits of raisin toast or a couple of biscuits a cup of a cup of tea and as i walk out the out the door i grab a couple of red bulls out of the fridge <laughs> and throw them down so um yeah, basically that's, you know, we start then and, uh, and you know, have a couple of hours during the middle of the day off and start again. It's only Jade and I have an afternoon. We don't have any staff of an Arvo, so get stuck into them then. And, you know, we try and um, do majority of our updates and that sort of stuff of an afternoon. So, um, but, you know, if I'm up in the grandstand clocking one or Jade's up in the grandstand clocking one or, you know, Alana or someone's up there, we'll try and get as many videos and that is of them working as we possibly can. Um, but, uh, yeah, we do sort of all the updates and then the boxes and anything else that needs to be done of an Arvo. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty hectic of a morning, but, uh, how many horses have you done? got? Uh, got 15 in at the moment, I think, after I did the shuffle around this morning, um, we took a couple out and bought a couple back. I think there's 15 there. So, um. Yeah, we did have 25 before COVID, but um, unfortunately, when they sort of scrapped a lot of the non-tab races and um, there was a bit of a flow-on effect, horses that you know couldn't go to the midweeks were sort of coming back to normal old tab country grade. And, um, obviously, that meant that the tab country grade was stronger, so the normal horses that would go to a tab would come back to a half tab, and then the half tab horses were sort of you know didn't have anywhere to go after that, and the non-tab horses were basically obsolete. So we had to sort of a few that were sort of good little bread and butter horses that, you know, pick up a couple of half tab sort of races and, you know, were around the mark in the tab races that sort of just weren't cutting it anymore. And, I, I you know, to look after the owners, I just said, listen, you know, we're going to have to move these horses on. We can't hang on to them. God only knows how long this um, bloody COVID pandemic is going to last for it. You know, it might last for a week. It might last for 10 years. And, you know, we can't hang on to them for too long. And it's just not a viable option to do it. So... We retired uh, a lot and um, and moved a lot on and basically went from 25 horses down to 10. So we, uh, you know, copped a copped a pretty pretty big reduction. But um, you know, we've sort of been been trying to rebuild from there and uh, you know we've 
we've battled on and it's been tough, but we're still here. That'd be tough because I'd imagine that you have plans to grow the stable. Yeah, look, you know, like, um, I'd, I'd like to have plenty of numbers. I'm sort of, uh, I've worked for a couple of stables that have, you know, had, you know, that 60, 70 horses mark and I've been quite high up um, in that, uh, in in those stables and I've learned how to manage numbers and um, sort of I like the challenge of managing numbers and that sort of stuff. So obviously we'd like to, you know, get the numbers right up. But uh, the, at the end of the day, you know, you can't just take on everything and you can't just keep sort of um, sending horses around for the fun of it. At the end of the day, the owners are going to jack up at some point and turn around and say, you know, enough's enough. So you're better off knocking it on the head, you know, as, as early as possible and saving the owners as much as you can. And, uh, you know, they, they're more than likely they're going to they're come back and, and, and keep supporting you, you know. So uh, uh, it was it was tough. It was tough, definitely tough. And uh, obviously the, the bank account feels it too. You're like, uh, basically, basically we've worked out for every $100,000 that goes through the, the business account, um, Jade and I make $10,000 that we have to split between us. Um, so I think... Uh, not la- yeah, last financial year um, we had a really good year. We got 20 winners for the season from about you know 15 to 20 horses in work at any one time. So it was a, you know it was a pretty handy season. Um, so you know we had um, about you know little over 600,000 go through the bank account. So basically Jade and I worked for 30,000 dollars each. You know seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, whereas. This time this year, we're down around that 250,000 mark. So basically, Jay and I worked for 12 and a half grand each. So um, it, it was tough, um, but we're not the only ones who's, who's, who've had to battle through COVID. Um, you know, there's plenty more in far worse positions than we, we are in. Um, but we're starting to get the winners on the board again. The stable's starting to grow again. We're back up to that sort of 15 mark. And with a fair few still in the paddock to come in. And uh, um, we've, there's a fair bit of interest around the stable again now that uh, the winners are starting to get on the board again too. So, um, you know, hopefully it starts to grow a little bit more again very soon.